0: Okay, I think we'll start. Um, Thank you all for coming along this evening. It's great to see you all here. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Yalakut Willem are part of the Boon Wurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulon Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and to the future. For those who don't know me, my name is Cainton Butler and I'm a Senior Curator at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences in Sydney and it's such a pleasure to be in this beautiful pavilion designed by OMA this evening. Tonight we hope to explore some of the challenges facing creative practitioners in Australia and internationally and we'll look at several key disciplines emerging in contemporary design practice. For tonight's session, we've gathered a panel of Australian creative talent featured in Common Good, a major exhibition opening on the 2nd of March 2018 at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. Common Good invites you to explore the impact of contemporary design practice in Australia and our neighbouring regions, examining how designers are responding to social, environmental and ethical challenges to affect change. The exhibition looks at the diversity of design practice through an expansive selection of projects ranging from material explorations, contemporary craft, video game design, speculative practice, and large scale architectural interventions. Common Good will act as a public platform to bring together socially engaged designers and research projects whilst highlighting the many cross cultural collaborative opportunities that exist for our regional community to work together towards tangible solutions for long-term sustainability. The curatorial approach is based on the idea that professional design practice has the potential to cross both geographic and disciplinary boundaries to directly influence our region's sustainable development and that the collective power of community can contribute to lasting generational change while fulfilling our responsibility to push the discipline of design forward. This evening we'll have an opportunity to hear from each of our panellists who will give a presentation and we will hopefully gain some insight into their daily practice. This will be followed by a short discussion and then we'll open to questions to the audience, so please get them ready. But first, it gives, gives me great pleasure to introduce our panellists, Paul, Paul Marcus Fogg, our co-founder of the design studio UP. Paul founded UP and ideas-led creative consultancy in 2004. Paul is also a founding member of Field Experiments, a nomadic collective that explores other cultures and people through design and collaborative making. In 2015, Paul's work for Field Experiments was nominated for the Design of the Year by the Design Museum in London. Paul's work has been shown at Fisher Parish, New York, Design Museum London, Ventura Lambrate in Milan and New York Design Week. Dan Kerner is Creative Director at Sandpit, a creative digital agency based in Melbourne and in Adelaide. Sandpit create self-produced digital artworks and collaborate with others from fellow artists and cultural institutions to brands and film and television to make projects for people to engage with the real world. Last year, Sandpit worked with Google's Creative Lab, Museum Victoria, the State Library of New South Wales and the Australian Centre for the Moving Image Dan has co-directed works for Penguin Books, the Australian Children's Television Foundation and an immersive after-hours experience for Melbourne Zoo. Last year he co-directed Eyes, an interactive audio tour about the apocalypse. Ken Wong is creative director at Mountains, a Melbourne-based game development studio. Ken is best known for his work as lead designer on the award-winning mobile game Monument Valley for Us2 Games. Monument Valley won a 2014 Apple Design Award and was named Apple's Best iPad Game of 2014. To date, Monument Valley has seen over a total of 25 million downloads. Having created art and design for games in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and London, Ken returned to Australia in 2016 to found mountains. Lucy McRae is a sci-fi artist, film director, TED Fellow, and body architect. Trained in classical ballet and interior design, Lucy places the human body in complex futuristic scenarios that confound the boundaries between the natural and the artificial. Lucy has led the Philips Electronics Far Future Research Lab and consulted with companies such as Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Intel, and ASOP. She's spoken at TED, Wired Health... Tribeca, Khan Lion and most recently at MIT's Being Material Conference. Lucy has collaborated with leading institutes including NASA and MIT and her work has been exhibited at the London Science Museum Centre Pompidou and the Venice Biennale. Please join me in welcoming our panellists. Thank you. If I can, I'd like to just start by establishing some context for tonight's discussion. The anti-consumerism counterculture movements of the 1960s and 70s made way for strategists and social innovation theorists that believe that the transition towards long-term sustainability requires radical changes in the way we produce and in the way that we live Today we witness this approach through design's many cross-disciplinary experiments and designers increasingly aware of their ethical responsibilities who are questioning conventional design methodologies. As a result, new methodologies are emerging from design subcultures which are now rapidly entering mainstream practice. We're seeing a radical shift in the way that designers work where science, art and technology intersect. Design as a discipline is increasingly hard to define and is responding to the complex challenges that exist today with new forms of professional practice. As digital technologies develop, our encounters with digital products also become more complex. The design of websites, video games and software systems act as powerful interactive tools facilitating awareness of important social and environmental issues, shaping our individual and collective behaviours. Furthermore, the emergence of our network societies increased design's civic responsibilities and social accountability. Through our connected systems, we have the ability to acquire and exchange knowledge and information in vast quantities. And design's role in the distribution of knowledge enables interaction designers to have a greater capacity in influencing our cultural values, as well as building awareness on a global scale. This is the context in which creativity exists in the 21st century. In recent years, speculative and critical design have emerged as important areas of practice in their ability to question the social and ethical implications of emerging technologies. As our social issues become more complex, these speculative projects investigate the challenges ahead of us and attempt to find solutions. These designers are acting not as practitioners, but also as researchers, theorists and strategists. Tonight we're looking at key disciplines emerging within this context. We're hoping to gain some rare insight into how these practitioners work and to get a temperature of what is happening in these sectors of the creative community in Australia. So now we'll hear um, from each of our panellists. First, to Paul. Um, so, UP, Paul studio, collaborated with Maz on the common good visual identity and um, perhaps, Paul, you'd like to start by giving us a little bit of background about the project and particularly on our focus on cross-cultural collaboration. And
1: yeah, sure. So, um, I think... Uh, you know one of the really interesting things for us, I guess um, in taking on this project um, was that uh, the exhibition is looking at the asia pacific region and um, and I guess um, Canton is looking at it as and thinking about it as an extension i guess of our or australia 's design community so for us, that idea of um, i guess like you know multiplicity and um, and inclu- being i guess inclusive of um, all these different countries and cultures really started to inform the way in which we would approach the identity. So um, I, guess, I guess from a language point of view, we, we very quickly, and I think as a team, identified, I guess, the, um, you know, the most common languages that were being represented within the work that's being exhibited in the show, and they were um, Korea, uh, Hindi, um, Chinese, Japanese, and English... So we found, you know, we thought that it was, it was definitely important that we needed to represent, um, you know, these different countries. And I think the the, the thing about, I guess, when we're talking about, um, you know, collaboration, I guess it's or, or, or talking about cross-cultural collaboration or any collaboration for that matter, it's this. I I think for any successful collaboration, there needs to be a, um, it needs to be kind of an even playing field. There needs to be um, no sense of hierarchy. So. Mm. For us as well, I think when we were looking at the um, identity and this is uh, we took a typographic approach to the identity was we didn't really want to have hierarchy where I mean where we could we didn't want to have any hierarchy between the different languages, so in some cases, the English um, is in the front and sometimes the Korean is in the front and I, th- I think for us as well it's just a way it was a way to sort of one speak of the um, different Cultures and countries that we were um, dealing with in the exhibition, but also at the same time trying to keep um, uh, some sort of unity or to create like a uniformity between um, all the different regions. So, um, yeah, I think I, th- I th- and I-, I guess that's what informed uh, initially this typographic approach, and we knew that this would be a kind of language-based identity. And the other thing that uh, the other thing that we identified pretty quickly was um, that. And I think you know, Kenton's alluded to this in the um, in her introduction as well. Is that um, we wanted this to be inclusive, so this wasn't a, a this isn't an exhibition just for designers, but it's an exhibition you know for the community to understand, I guess, you know what design can be, and to also understand that broad spectrum of what design is. So for us, this idea of um, inclusivity didn't uh, it wasn't necessarily talking just about the different countries and cultures, but it was also talking about um, you know the the different audience. You know, engaging both the design audience, but also those non-design audience as well. And you know, for us, that's a um, you know, it's a it, it's a slight challenge to sort of think about how do we how do we do that? You know, how do we how do we not alienate a particular group, particularly when it's at a museum and it's essentially a design exhibition or it's an exhibition about contemporary design. So for us, it was probably celebrating. Or in a way, trying to celebrate the, um, the the amateur. So a lot of the photos were the, there's some sort of amateur documentation of the process. And for us, it was probably about elevating that as a way to help kind of connect people and try not to try not to create a design that was high-minded, um, in a sense. And I think you know that that, that sort of folds onto the next bit, which th- this idea of. Um, this idea of a design being kind of open, and we were just talking about this before we, um, you know, before the panel started, um, about the design... One, the design that we created was not... We weren't looking for it to be a solution or the identity to be a solution um, because I think one of the most interesting things about this exhibition is that it is trying to... Or it is exhibiting design... um, at a point where it's in great flux, you know, where this, is, this has real momentum, what's happening here. So it's kind of like crystallising this tiny little moment within design, but yet it's still around the, around, the, you know, uh, around the periphery. It's still just moving, and it's really dynamic and really in flux. So I think for us, the identity needed to feel that as well, needed to feel as though it, was, um, it had that kind of momentum. So that, without being able to show what it looks like. Um, it just, for us, it was about, like, precarious placement of type and image and, you know, almost to a point where it feels, it feels slightly unresolved, you know, in a way, slightly open as well. And, sorry, looping back to what I was talking about before, um, so our, yeah, our approach to this design was, um, was not about what, you know, what, how do we solve this? How do we present this exhibition in this well you know, this, this sort of wrapped up form that's like a, a concrete kind of solution. It was more about well, how do we sort of present this as a, more like a possibility or an offering, something that might stimulate conversation or something that might sort of stimulate some dialogue. Because I think a lot of the work in, in this um, exhibition is very much about that, it's not, it's not um, design. Necessarily as a solution, it's sort of design, It's more about presenting possibilities about what design could be and where design could go. So, um, I think we're trying to kind of reflect that in the design as well, in the design of the show. And that's you know, so that so it's sort of malleable. It's kind of in flux. Even you know, working with. Um, uh Catherine bond who's also the exhibition designer also down to the materiality so that you know the fabric and everything it's kind of malleable and movable it sort of has this sense that, that that it's that it's dynamic and it's um in flux and i think really you know for, for me i i sort of hope and why i think this exhibition is so important is and so important to engage non-designers is that um One, it shows such a broad spectrum of what design could be from, uh, you know, from design that's looking at the preservation of craft and to design that's, you know, digital tools that are looking to, um, you know, correct or or, um, our behaviour or... um, And I think at at the same time that it's showing, I guess, it's showing to a broader audience too just how important... That type of design, that type of design experimentation, is for our future in terms of uh, everything. In terms of you know facilitating, in terms sorry, in terms of um, you know keeping communities, keeping craft. In terms of um, looking at sustainable sustainability and resources and materials. So I, yeah, I, I, m- my hope would be that uh, the exhibition really does appeal to a much broader audience and does it does obviously appeal to designers and the hope that they come there and they challenge themselves about what, what am I doing as a designer? How am I using design as a tool? And how could I use design as a tool? Um, and But also then engaging non-designers to, for them to sort of understand the importance of design and what design can be. Because, you know, sometimes it can be very narrow, its description. And I think what's great about this is it's kind of exploded it. You know, under, I think there's five, five different themes. There's life cycles return to craft, community engagement, connected experiences, and design fictions. And I'm in,
2: impressed. With,
1: <laughs> with, and within that, there is just such an expansive um, you know, array of design and design possibilities. Thanks. That's okay.
0: Um, Dan, perhaps you'd like to have a... Um Talk us through one of the uh, pieces that you've got in the exhibition as a sort of a way to, to unpack some of your uh, design process and the work that Sandpit do. Yeah,
3: sure. Um, the piece that we have in the exhibition is called The General Story um, and that came out of a collaboration with the state government of South Australia um, as a part of their carbon neutral Adelaide scheme. Um, and one of the key things that they'd identified um, within that scheme is kind of wastage broadly, but food wastage. Um, And we had an opportunity to uh, create an installation at the Central Markets in Adelaide, where there was a spare stall, Um, and we installed a a series of shelves that looked like a store and 3D printed a whole bunch of kind of white um, food products. So there was some bananas, an aubergine, some milk, um, a loaf of bread, and a chop... (laughs) Um, and we projection mapped onto all of these objects and made them come to life. Uh, so we worked with a local animator, Chris Edzer, who created these really kind of cute but really beautiful little animations where um, these little objects could come to life. And little speech bubbles appear next to them um, and you can interact with the characters by sending text messages to them um, to which they respond. Um, and they can send you some kind of recipes and tips to help out with food wastage. Um, That's a bit of a broader theme with my company, Sandpit, that um, seems to be about bringing inanimate objects to life, which we kind of do a lot of. Um, uh, But Sandpit itself is a a digital um, agency. Um, We're slightly unusual in the fact that um, although the works are always digital, that they always manifest in the real world in various ways. Um, and I'm kind of lucky tonight that I have two friends in the audience who kind of often say to me, no one understands what you do. Um, so this is kind of a potted history of the company. Um, so we, we started back in 2012 um, with a commission from the Adelaide Festival to go into the Adelaide Zoo and to create a work. Um, and that was the brief. Um, so we uh, pulled together a whole bunch of our kind of previous collaborators and so we had some performers and designers and musicians, uh, visual artists um, and we spent some time in the zoo coming up with some ideas for things that could happen uh, with the animals inside the exhibits or alongside an animal or around it um, with maybe a performer and with an animal or maybe a sculptural object. Um, and what we found was that we had a whole bunch of really eclectic ideas So we were looking for a way to stitch it all together. So in the end, we created this very elaborate audio tour um, called I Am Not an Animal that took 200 people on four nights of the Adelaide Festival through the Adelaide Zoo. Um, And the content was really about um, looking at yourself as a human through the lens of an animal. Um, And so to begin with, the audience was hearing um, some audio content about uh, the beginning of life on Earth and the evolution of life on Earth. Um, and towards the end, each audience member was dotted around the zoo as the sun set um, while the voice in their head um, was talking about the ultimate fate of the universe when there's nothing left. Um, uh, then we brought all of the audience back together where we had a children's choir in the panda enclosure singing uh, The Flaming Lips, Do You Realise? Um, so that was kind of the opus that started the company, um, and we were lucky enough that the Melbourne Zoo bought the work in as a permanent installation that ran for three years, Called iAnimal. Um, that was um, a very similar setup, but uh, the smarts got smarter um, for that installation. So it's that point that we really started the company and thought, you know, this is a fun job um, doing stuff in the real world with a digital backend. Um, and really, the ethos behind the company um, is um, trying to find ways for people to connect in the real world um, and not to be um, prefacing digital too heavily that it actually sits behind our work. Um, from there, we went on to work with Penguin Books, um, where we created a project called Dial a Story um, that was a kind of nostalgic 1950s, 1960s-looking phone booth. Um, and you approached the phone booth and picked up the phone, and John Safran was the operator. And he said, I've got a whole bunch of author- Penguin's authors here that want to uh, share a story with you, and you can dial in which story you want to hear. Um, And it was really great. We got to spend kind of half a day with a whole bunch of Penguin's authors to get a story out of them that you wouldn't get from one of their books. Um, And so you hear a story from one of these authors, and we had Father Bob and Maggie Beer and Jamie Durie, who actually had a really excellent story. Um, And uh, they share a story with you and then invite you to share a story back after the beep. So there's a beep, and you share your own story and then hang up, and it prints out a little ticket with a URL and a unique ID on it. Um, And if you visit the website and punch in that ID, you can hear your story back, but also an archive of all the other stories that have been left there as well. Um, And that travelled around Australia, Um, there were two of them, uh, to libraries and airports and bookstores, Um, and that was really the start of us kind of manufacturing our own physical objects in the company as well, which is something we've continued. and in this vein of kind of bringing inanimate objects to life, um, we recently had um, a project over at the Art Centre, um, and this, this is probably a bit of an insight into our kind of practice as well, that they, they invited us in uh, nearly two years ago where they had identified a problem that um, a lot of the public in Melbourne perceives the Art Centre as being an elitist space, And you go there and it can feel like that. It's red velvet and brass and opera and there's an air curtain that blows you back as you try to walk through the front door. But it's a civic building, it's open all day, every day with a fairly incredible um, permanent artwork collection there that no one goes to see. And there's there's three levels that you can go down but if you go there during the day you feel like a security guard's going to come and tell you off. Um, So they approached us to find a way that um, particularly families and children could experience the building freely. Um, so they had us in for kind of a week to um, to scope out how we might do that. Um, and initially they were fairly adamant that we would build an app for them, um, which is something we often push back against. Um, and I think it was on our second day there, um, I was walking down one of the corridors and um, I realised that there was exactly the same brass lamp with the red velvet lamp shade on repeat about 200 times through the building. And the next time you go there, you'll, you'll notice... Um, so we went, wouldn't it be great if the lamp came to life? So we created a project called The Story of Lamp um, where you arrived at the box office and you got given a storybook called The Story of Lamp. Um, we worked with the local illustrator, Nick Lewis, to create the book. Um, and you opened to page one and it says, in 1982, Lamp was born into this world and she's been stuck here ever since. She'd love to meet you. And there's a hand-drawn map that takes you to your first lamp. Um, and then if you tap the book to the lamp it comes to life and starts to talk. Um, So we removed the light bulb and replaced it with some LEDs so um, the intensity of the light kind of goes along with her voice and she tells stories of um, a forest and the light goes green or a thunderstorm and the light goes blue and goes Um, and uh, again the same strategy that we employ a lot on the back page. There's a URL and a unique ID and if you go home and punch in the You get to take the book home, which is a bonus. Um, but if you go home and punch in the ID, you can see a record of all of the lamps that you visited on your visit to the art Centre. Um, there are many more examples of that, but that's very much in the spirit of the, um, the installation that we have coming up at, at Mass in a couple of months.
0: Thanks, Dan. Um, and, Ken, you've got your uh, first mobile game with mountains to be released this year which will feature, uh, we're very pleased to feature in Common Good. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh,
4: Yeah, sure. Um, So I guess rewinding a a little bit um, a few years ago um, I was working in London at another digital agency called Us2 and um, so they Unlike you, they're quite happy making apps um, and other sort of interactive multimedia content. And on the side, they had a games team. And it was sort of like good promotion. They could kind of make games on the side. You know, games are like a lot like apps. They use a lot of the same tools, a lot of the same concepts. Um, And I joined them, and the brief was just make whatever game you want. Like Go Nuts, you know, their main business was to make... Um, you know, apps and, and and other digital products, and so the games team had um, this kind of free brief, which is really rare in in the games industry. Um, and so, I've I've always had like this interest in architecture, and I've been trying for a long time to figure out how to make a game about architecture. Uh, and uh, one day, I I drew this image of. A building with a little figure at the bottom and uh, I said like what if what if the idea was to get the the figure to the top of the building and in, in order to do that you have to interact with the architecture you have to like swipe on it to to move the pieces of the architecture to kind of unravel a maze and and that game became Monument Valley uh, which came out in 2014 um, at the time I thought I was making a game for hipsters and other designers um, but the game resonated really well with a really wide audience um, and I think that's because we just kind of went back to good design principles of just making it fun to interact interact with, um, good visuals, good sound design um, it's almost entirely wordless so um, even children can play it, we had a lot of People writing in saying that their three-year-olds or their five-year-olds would play the game over and over again, um, and uh, yeah, I think this was really important in in the games industry, and 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 people talked a lot about about um, how a game was kind of different because instead of uh, looking at games culture and and responding to that, we were just sort of looking at wider. Looking for inspiration in the de- the wider design community, like look- getting inspiration from uh, from prints from architecture from graphic design um, and so this experience taught me that you know games can learn a lot more by by looking outside and and can have like a, a really big effect on on audiences. Um, mobile games are played by so many hundreds of millions of people around the world, and with that kind of audience, we sort of have a responsibility to develop the message that we're sending out there. Like, what kind of values are we, are we passing on to the next generation? Um, you know, and I think video games, computer games, mobile games, this is the art form of our generation. It's, it's sort of a, a very young art form, and we're still figuring things out and still, like, learning um, how we fit in amongst other mediums. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting to get to participate in the common good and, and further that conversation about how can video games benefit society and, and how can we have more conversations about how to make better games and, and make them in a better way so um, Monument Valley did really well and I was able to come back to Australia and start a new studio about two years ago and um, it took a bit of time to figure out what we were making but um, we were, we we, we we always knew that we were going to make a mobile game, and I think when you make a mobile game, you look at the the platform. So you're looking at touch screens, you're looking at portable devices, devices that are online all the time, and thinking about what, what kind of game can you make with that, right? That's different from making a PlayStation game or a PC game. You want to build towards the platform. And, and I was really interested in focusing on the touch screen, like, what touch interactions haven't we explored enough yet? And, and, and what does it mean to interact with the game solely through, through touching? And, um, through that, through, through conversations with my team, uh, we talked a lot about intimacy, how, you know, touching the screen is a form of intimacy and, and could maybe facilitate sort of, or, or emulate tender interactions or, um, you know, we are talking about stroking and touching. um, and the concept that we arrived at was exploring the relationship between two people um, through the touch interface. Um, and that was sort of the start of Florence, uh, this game that we're working on that isn't out yet, but um, will be playable at the common good. Um, and as as the, the project developed, um, we started, and we were starting to tell the life of this this young woman, Florence, um, and we're, we're, you know, particularly this, this segment of her life where she, she falls in love with a guy called Krish and sort of the ups and downs of their relationship, um, we started telling that story through um, mobile interfaces that we sort of embedded in the game. So Florence has a mobile phone and she has social media. She talks to her mum on the phone. And so we're kind of like, uh, it's this kind of like, Phone within a phone concept, where um, you know, even though you're using a phone, you're kind of experiencing Florence's use of her phone, and hopefully through that experience, you're reflecting on how our lives are experienced through a digital lens. Um, and uh, yeah, um, it's it's uh, it's been a trip because I, I don't think there's anything quite like any any game quite like that um, out there. <laughs> Um, uh oh another another thing that we really wanted to, to to um include in the game was a portrait of um current day Melbourne, so you know we had to find a setting for this game and at the start, I had it in my mind that uh New York you know New York is this romantic city where love stories take place, and I kind of got over that and said like well we're in Melbourne, we should like it's, it's just easier to reference the stories around us and the people around us. And so when it came time to design the identities for our two characters, I thought that a really um, meaningful move would be to, to use non-white characters. So Florence is uh, a Malaysian-Australian, uh, like myself, And her love interest, Krish, is an Indian-Australian. So they're both second-generation immigrants. And I think that's um, a sampling of of modern Australia. I look around our audience here and I see um, all types of faces. And I don't know if that's a portrait of Australia that's that's often expressed to the rest of the world. Um, And certainly not in the form of a video game so i 'm really excited about how um, you know Florence can um, be a point of discussion about about romance and relationships um, and and which i which I think is a, an underserved topic for games and and something that games could uh, facilitate but, but hasn 't been much in the past, and also about how we can discuss identity. Um, through, through games, through stories like this. That's about what I have to say.
0: Thanks, Ken. Um, so, Lucy, your work, the Institute of Isolation, is featured in Common Good, and uh, we're also very pleased to have the incredible um, film costume that was specially designed for the film to display, which you worked with the Royal Opera, I think, on. Um, which is a a nice sort of um, reference to your uh, ballet background and training as well. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about the project and how it came about?
2: It might help. I experience the same difficulty of people finding it difficult to understand what I do. (laughs) So just to maybe back it up a bit. As a a science fiction artist, I use the body as a conceptual space to explore biotechnology, Um, and it's a big landscape, but I'm particularly focused on the future of health, medicine, beauty, the future of sport, where science and technology merge, and then thinking about more far-future science, what happens when we exit Earth and and colonise new planets and... um, I'm particularly interested in pregnancy in space at the moment, and how do we kind of continue as a human species? So it's a really big um, bandwidth that I I really enjoy exploring, and I use science fiction as as a mechanism or a tool to understand where we are headed. Um, The work that I've done with MIT was exploring pneumatic materials and architecture. It was with the self-assembly lab, and they pioneered 4D printing, which is where you throw um, separate particles into water that has a certain turbulence, and depending upon the speed and the turbulence the water is moving in, it forms a chair. You remove that, you throw the particles back in, you dial down the speed or up the speed, and then it forms a different object And so we created a 25-metre structure around jamming technology, which in a very simplistic term is when you get your coffee, it's vacuum-packed. And this this technology is used on the end of robot arms to pick up certain objects. So it's basically a membrane filled with tiny particles. You pull a vacuum and this end of the arm becomes a solid. It can pick up an egg. It can pick up a glass of water. And so we were interested in creating a jamming technology for the entire body. What would that mean to well-being? What would that mean to building architecture off Earth? Because payloads are so expensive and would it be cheaper to kind of aggregate Mars dust, put a membrane around it, pull a vacuum and create um, infrastructure? So that's an example of working with... Um, architects, scientists, roboticists. Um, Then on the other spectrum is working with brands like ESOP, which is a a film that I created with them about the future of health, the future of beauty, and how will technology change the way we interact with products, the way that we interact with ourselves and products. Um, And all of these artworks are are opportunities for me to... um, sort of try and understand complex science. I'm very interested in genetic engineering and I don't know if if everyone here is familiar with CRISPR technology. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, and please um, excuse my very simplified term, but CRISPR technology is biological scissors um, where you can cut out a faulty strand of DNA and replace it with a perfect strand of DNA And we're getting to the point now where we are able to design human biology so we can put in desirable attributes and remove things like disease or or faults that we don't want. And um, what I'm interested in is creating platforms to discuss how science is slowly reconstructing the body and and changing um, human evolution, essentially. So an example project is... um, project that I did with a synthetic biologist called Swallowable Perfume, which is a cosmetic pill that you eat. It works from the inside out. And when you perspire, you sweat a biologically enhanced fragrance. Um, At the time, I was interested in pheromone excretion and that the healthiest babies come from opposite immune systems. And could the beauty market be responsible for totally disrupting the industry and change the way that we might seek sexual partners when we, when pheromones are excreted in social environments and we kind of change the dynamics of, of communication. Um, I'm going a little bit off-piste here, so, so bear with me. Um, and other films, Make Your Maker, was exploring the kind of extremes of genetic engineering and could we think about... And this was commissioned by a restaurateur who only eats her own food, so everything in the film is edible. Uh, what happens when we could clone the body to it being a point of a food source and then you eat yourselves in order to enhance your experience of the world. And I made this film about four or five years ago when the concept of eating yourself in order to enhance your senses would be absurd. But now, when you think about bioengineering, biohacking, citizen science and actually synthetic biology happening in the kitchen, it's not that crazy. And... Um, You were talking about kind of this concept of things being unresolved or this exhibition being an opportunity for people not only in the design industry to kind of learn about where we're at. I'm really interested in using the superhighways of music video, pop, art, fashion to communicate complex science like genetic engineering or, you know, the complications of growing a fetus in zero gravity, which is, by the way, one of the things that NASA is concerned with at the moment. And since I met this economist from NASA, I've been really dedicating a lot of my research and and seeking the right kind of collaborators um, to understand the implications zero gravity has on the body because I believe it's a weak signal, but I believe that the kinds of innovations that come from space innovation really benefit life on Earth. So um, speculative design... Um, definitely has a purpose in terms of kind of improving the way that we experience the world. The Institute of Isolation is a project that came off the back of an earlier work uh, called Future Bar, which was an installation commissioned by Mini and Dezeen for the London Design Festival. It's a personalised guided experience. It was a four-day event where audience members enter... Um, a science fiction world where you temporarily hand your body over to science and technology and you become this character within this science fiction story and you lay down underneath a, a pressurised sheet. So essentially I'm doing that jamming technology that your coffee arrives in a bag, I'm doing that to your body. So we vacuum pack your body. I'm really fascinated with using the gallery setting as a usability test. So you're basically prototyping on strangers to see what if. Um, And as a result of this project, which was then commissioned again the following year in Los Angeles, it was one client who, um, as he laid down underneath this pressurised sheet, um, which is revealing, you're kind of naked underneath this... Plastic because it pulls such a tight vacuum. People have said it's like a 360-degree cuddle. It's nothing that you can get from a human. It's machine-human, which I think is particularly interesting thinking about the kind of future intimacy and the phenomenon of touch um, in a you know, haptic digital world. How do you kind of combine physical and, and, and digital together? And so this guy laid there very nervous um, and said, can I disclose something? about myself of which I leaned in and said sure and he said that he suffered haptophobia which is a fear of touch and that he had no physical contact with any other person and I could see that there was a real emotional transaction going on so I gave him a nine-minute treatment which is double what we were doing and then when he got up out of that bed he said It felt like an embrace and he reached out and he hugged me. So that was a very unexpected, very quick change of behaviour in nine minutes to go from being totally closed off to the world to then interacting. And so the Institute of Isolation, coming back around, um, at the end of the Future Day Spa, in the beginning I was interested in um, how can we prepare the body for space when our bi- the biology that we are designed with is not meant to exist in a weightless environment and we see that from one of the twins who spent a year there and he's really struggling and his twin brother is like the constant um, comparison to how um, dilapidated his body has come because of a year in space. And so this Future Day Spa was originally designed to kind of train and optimise the body for space travel... And after this experience where this guy sort of moved out of um, this place of being closed off, I became more interested in the kind of um, psychology of isolation. And so, the Institute of Isolation, which is the film screening at the Powerhouse, is a a nine-and-a-half-minute observational fictional documentary. So, I created a fictional institute called the Institute of Isolation And it contemplates whether we can design extreme experiences like isolation. So if you think about an architect designs a building, a chemist designs a vaccine, could we design isolation as a way of uh, improving human resilience, which is our ability to bounce back from the unknown and space is the great unknown Um, and you see the protagonist move through 11 different sensory chambers which are locations throughout um, London, Austria and Spain. It was commissioned by Ars Electronica and London Science Museum. And whilst I was doing this film, I came across a project by Red Bull called Project Acheron where they sent four elite athletes very skilled at um, at their own sport And they sent them on, like, a very extreme, death-defying, challenging adventure. And they scanned their brains before they went on these 10 days and then 10 days after. And they saw that the the resilience and decision-making parts of their brain had changed. And so, as I'm fascinated in genetic engineering and being able to replace certain parts of DNA... I'm becoming more interested in creating experiences, physical experiences that could optimise or improve the body, which is less about genetics, epigenetics and your kind of g- what's passed down through generations but doing it in a physical manner.
0: Thanks, Lucy. I'm, just, I'm interested in the... Um, I guess, you know, we talked earlier about the importance of speculative design in, in potentially... Um, Looking at um, uh, potential issues that might arise from emerging technologies, but how how likely? What do you see as the uptake with with brands, for example, to actually adopt this sort of way of thinking or this creative process or or, or the research that um, that artists like yourself are doing to um, to actually help sort of drive their own sort of product innovation and and are there any examples that you can think of where um, that has been the case? I I
2: definitely... um, I think probably everyone's got an example. I definitely see a kind of wave of um, working with artists and brands and the kind of innovation that comes from that... Um, Intel has always been a good example in the Creators Project. That's sort of like a decade ago um, following sort of behind the scenes and working with artists and and collaborations. My artistic study of technology started in 2006 when I was at Philips leading a far-future design research lab. And we were there trying to understand emotional sensing, which is a very difficult task to do. And essentially, in a very sort of small nutshell, we were creating almost concept cars for Philips. So we were creating artworks that could be used as a a way to engage the public and understand how emerging technologies might yield new business for Philips. And those types of, of... This was a very unique position, and I think it's those kinds of relationships between a brand... Um, understanding that in order for them to be seen at the forefront of innovation, they need to involve the kind of canaries in the, co- in, the, in the coal mine in order to stay ahead of that curve because in 2006 at Philips, we were looking 20 to 30 years ahead. If we think about that now, in, I'm, I'm, um, I spoke at, um, at a TED conference last year, we were talking 500 generations ahead. And so it's just going so quickly... And, and what we talked about earlier is this: the excitement around the uncertainty that science and technology is um, bringing. That you you solve a problem um, with the technology, and as a result, so many other problems come about. Whether it's ethical, demo- the d- democratization of science, and that what I, that's what I think the creative process can really. Um, delve into
0: there's a, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about whether or not creativity is driving technology or whether it's the other way around and I thought it was interesting that Ken you talked about actually using the mobile platform as a starting point for Florence and how you actually interact with that technology um, but I was just wondering with you Dan whether or not because your practice seems so embedded in storytelling and you have such a I I guess a diverse background in theatre and um, whether or not you tend to start with the technology first or whether it is something else entirely.
3: There there are kind of no rules to the way we work sometimes. We do a lot of work with Google's Creative Lab up in Sydney and um, it's a very similar thing to what you were talking about, that they're trying to kind of divine... Um, with a lot of their technologies, how things could go wrong, or well. the kind of the, the ethical ramifications of what they're playing with. Um, so often they kind of send us a bit of gear that we'll kind of build something around. But sometimes it starts with the story, and we build it out from there. We um, we had a fund from the uh, the Australian Council um, uh, called the Digital Theatre Initiative uh, for three years, which was about picking up new and emerging forms of technology and looking at. How it may or may not apply to live arts, and a biggest biggest part of that inquiry was um, was going when when does a piece of technology stand in between liveness, um, and when does a if I'm if I'm observing a performer, um, when does a particular piece of technology start to get in the way um, and feel like I'm not with the human being anymore, which is so so uh, key to a lot of the work that we kind of do. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah.
0: Um, Ken, I just wanted to ask you, you've recently moved back to Australia, like myself, actually, (laughs) and I was just really keen to hear your, I guess, your impressions of the independent games industry here, Um, and whether or not you see any, if there's been sort of a lot of progression in recent years, or just your sort of... Understanding of what gaming culture looks like in Australia at the moment.
4: Yeah, um, so Australia has kind of a relatively small games community, like compared to the U.S. and the U.K. But it's very strong in what we would call indie games development. So not not your big blockbuster, massive titles that can cost you know more than a movie can cost. over a hundred million dollars where Australia kind of shines is smaller projects like anything from like tiny one person teams to a couple of people. Our studio mountains is four people and um, a combination of economics, the global financial crisis um, meant that um, sort of the bigger studios in Australia mostly died out in a couple of years ago, about, about 10 years ago. And so what's replaced that are younger studios with a lot of, with with younger designers and sort of more, I feel like, more progressive attitudes and and more open attitudes to what games can be. Um, I feel like there's this older attitude of, like, games are for kids, games are for boys, games are about shooting people up and, you know, and mindless violence. And I think, you know, the 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 more modern mindset, and I think a, a big a big theme about the Australian games community is uh, just what you know what what better uses do we have for games like how can we use games as education, even in the form of entertainment like what stories can we tell? can we tell stories about refugees? can we reflect on war? can we talk about Sexual identity and and politics through games, and I I certainly think that that's that's been a big conversation in in the games community, in the Australian games community, in the past couple of years. Um, I'm not sure how aware some of you are about this thing called GamerGate, which happened a couple of years ago, where. A bunch of online trolls gave like basically you know started harassing and sending death threats to a female game developer and um, uh, two of my contemporaries uh, uh, Lena van deventer and, and Dan Golding wrote a book about this about how um, uh, and they 're based in Melbourne about how um, the, the the toxicity of of sort of gamer culture uh, gave way to like the alt-right so you could you could kind of see these trends of like of angry people conservative people racist people um, coming up through the games community like like seeing these events happen online and that paving the way for the current political climate I think I've I'm not sure if I've lost the point but um, okay it's about the Australian games community where I you know I think we're very I, I think we we are looking very hard at at what we're doing, um, and Melbourne especially. Melbourne is Melbourne has um, uh, I think about forty percent of the of the games industry in Australia, and so this is the place to be, I think.
0: <laughs> Good answer. Um... Paula, I was just going to ask you um, just in terms of your practice and we talked um, a bit earlier about the approach for common good, for example. Um, you, you've you worked with Field Experiments, which was a craft-based project um, and your work uh, really, I think, one of your strengths is working with print-based media. How How have you adopted digital technology in the last few years and how do you feel that it will potentially inform or change your work in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. Um, we, we ran a... Myself and I ran a workshop, um, a 12-week workshop at Monash um, this year for the third-year students, communication design students... <clears throat> And it was titled Unlimited Limited. And it was really a focus on what um, this movement from, I guess, mass manufacturing um, to... um, uh, Well, I've totally lost my train of thought. Um, What was it, Uriah? That's it. Mass manufacturing to mass personalisation. And it, it was really talking about this idea of... Um, uh, I guess as we as we move into this idea of you know three D printing and we move into print on demand and things like this, what role does that leave for the designer? So we're kind of in, I guess we're in a, in a sense we're empowering the user to be able to do their own things. So uh, people are now able to be able to you know download things and print things and do them themselves. So it kind of starts to you know really in a way eliminate that designer and the role of the designer. Um, so I think for us it was, and with the students, it was really challenging them to think about well, what I- what is my role in that kind of equation? Like, what do I do? And we've certainly seen it in our practice now, where it's it's getting less about designing that final object, and it's sort of designing systems. So, a very simple example would be book design. So um, we we have just recently gone through a, a rebranding of an architecture practice and one of the things they wanted to do was to create a book um, at the at the at the conclusion of every, every project just to really just to collate everything that they've done so it'd be all the all the research that has gone into um, you know prior to going into the build and for us we were thinking about well this is a how, how do we do this and how do we allow them to do it because they're producing you know projects at a rapid rate how do we how do we allow them to do it so it was more It was less about designing the book and then thinking about a system, so for us it was like, okay, a good system would be if this book actually existed as a WordPress, so it exists as a website, and then when you export it it'd be so we're kind of eliminating ourselves from that process so when you when you export it the specifications line up with a uh, the specifications to be sent to a print on demand so basically he just exports it sends it to the print on demand and then the book and then he, then the book just arrives So it's kind of our, it's changing the way in which we work a little bit so I think it's sort of I think it's exciting though because it, it presents these challenges for us to think about how do we still, create these things but how do we use technology to enable these things rather than think okay we're not going to do that we're going to move away from that so it's definitely it's definitely changed well it's it's changed the way in which we work internally but it's also changed the way in which we service clients and that doesn't mean just creating digital work but it means even even print-based stuff moving that into a digital platform because as we were talking about Um, common good and talking about this idea of design being in flux and it's just moving at such a rapid rate I think that applies to the broad spectrum of design so for us the most dynamic medium is is digital medium and is that is a web medium so if we can move our things even print-based things to online then it's um it's much more efficient for us as well so on a very um, practical level, any templates that we would produce are now kind of moved online rather than being kind of physical templates and things like that. So it has, yeah, it has changed our practice a bit.
0: Um, My next question's for you, Dan, and then I think we'll um, see if the audience has any questions. Um, There's a lot of discussion about VR at the moment, and I guess this is a slightly selfish question for myself, but... A lot of designers are curious as to how VR is actually going to inform and influence their practice in the future and, and what capabilities the medium have. And I know that you've worked with a couple of, uh, on a couple of VR projects recently, one with Google, um, and I just wanted to sort of see what your thoughts were in terms of the future applications of that medium.
3: Um. I'm not sure how much this speaks to the future, but one of the things that we're really interested in is, and Google as well, is what, um, what is the experience of VR for audiences who aren't actively within the, the VR? So what, what does it mean to observe someone that's in a VR environment? Um, uh, we worked with Google a couple of years ago to create a piece called Ghost and the Things Unsaid where audience members put on a ghost sheet um, with two eye holes um, uh, there was some hidden technology inside the sheet that is basically um, what drives VR. Um, but it meant that based on your physical orientation and what you were looking at, you could hear the inner thoughts of a whole bunch of people who were surrounding you. Um, so it's kind of VR with sound only. Um, but that was an interesting thing for other audiences, other audience members to observe um, two people standing there with go sheets on. Um, we're doing a couple more things in that space with them at the moment. But um, actually, one of the one of the most interesting applications down that thread that I've seen before is a, a piece by Closer Productions, which is a um, a studio from Adelaide uh, who made a piece that was commissioned by Acme called "Stuck in the Middle with You," um, directed by Matt Bate, um, where they worked with Sydney Dance Company um, and. Uh, This was over at Acme for a few weeks and you put on the VR visor and suddenly you're on stage with the Sydney Dance Dance Company and they're all kind of dancing around you Um, and then suddenly they all stop and turn around and look at you like what are you doing Um, and then they all come over and teach you these dance moves. Um, and the experience um, there were five different headsets and so people who were waiting to go in could see these five people with a headset on learning these dance moves with the Sydney Dance Company and of course they couldn't see all these people looking at them so they were kind of doing it without feeling too self-conscious but that's really interesting for us too like how can um, observing a VR installation be just as satisfying as being inside it as well
0: and interesting for museums as well I think um, so, I just wanted to see if there are any um, questions from the audience.
4: Everyone's shy. No,
0: everyone is
4: too shy.
5: Um, hi. Um how much is the porpocy of our popular media uh, in storytelling creating a void for which design now has to step in and fulfil?
0: Sorry, can you repeat the question?
5: I'm sorry. How much is the porpocy of the popular media in quality terms, meaning design now has a void, it has to step in and fulfil, so the popular media keeps going down to the lowest common denominator um, very few educated people even bother tele- turning televisions on but are still yearning for messages and learning about life how much is it that design now has to step in to provide that
0: um, well I, I I can't really speak from design's perspective, but I can speak from a museological perspective, I guess. Um, What we are trying to, I guess, achieve in the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences is looking uh, currently at reflecting contemporary design practice in all of its iterations. And we talked earlier about the fluidity of design practice at the moment the uncertainty and the um, agility that designers are n- needing to um, demonstrate. And I think that as a museum, it's, it's our responsibility to reflect that level of practice and also support designers who are on this um, journey, I guess. And I guess from our perspective design as a discipline is is continually evolving and I think that for all of us that are engaged in the discipline it's really about lifelong learning now uh, there's no real precedent for uh, how to practice design or, or even how to, to talk about design or even exhibit design so we're all kind of on this journey together and there's, there's not really a, a, a finite point and I, I think what Lucy um, mentioned earlier, it's, it's an incredibly exciting prospect for all of us actually to be at this point. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure whether that answered your question, but.
5: Well, a, maybe to what I was possibly. <laughs> Communities need to st- tell stories because there's actually an important thing, a feedback mechanism as to what's going on. If the stories are not being told in the popular media, somebody else has got to tell the stories. Is this what I heard the examples here this evening of people saying, We're telling the stories about what's going on in life. The game story is telling an important story. Uh, the biomedical stories are important stories, and you're telling those stories. So is that what's going on now? That you're now the, becoming the lead storytellers in the community?
4: Uh, I, I would say yeah. yes. I, I would say like you look at how film is a big part of our storytelling culture, but it wasn't always that way. You know, there were you know film had to emerge as an an art form and as a storytelling form, and I see the same thing happening with computer and video games today. Um, you know, for young people, it's 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 a it's a big um, mode of consumption for them. They get a lot of their content from YouTube, from Netflix, from playing games online with their friends, from playing games uh, on mobile devices, and uh, and that's why we have to examine the stories that we're telling, and um, hopefully learn from the mistakes of the past.
2: Um. I really like your question. I've been spending a bit of time in Los Angeles teaching um, architecture students how to make films. We did a 15-week intense course and there's a lot of discussion within Hollywood that the narratives that are being told in blockbuster movies are so poor and the messages are so far from the truth and so who's telling these... You know, What studios are responsible for telling these bad stories And how do we get... Liam Young is a a good example. He's an Australian architect heading up the design, fiction and storytelling department at SciArc, the school that I was at. And so we're bringing in um, robust storytelling fiction departments within architecture schools to attempt to tackle this problem. Unfortunately, it's a big money problem because studios who have more money... Know what they're going to sell, they can speculate that if I tell this story, it has this arc and it will sell, and we can make another movie because this one was successful, which the byproduct of that is hopefully more indie films will be made they'll be the ones telling the right stories, and hopefully pop- popular culture will will enjoy them, and then they become more of the narratives that we we're interested in or that will be told. Sorry, that was a bit muddled at the end, but um, I think you're tapping into something that is definitely an issue within cinema. I mean, yeah, the, 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 the fringes... Um, I'm interested in tapping into the fringes of culture, not just sort of a small group, and I think that, especially in terms of science, I think your question can apply to, to not only design, but science and biotechnology and um, robotics and, and gaming. We're at a really, really exciting time where we've never been at a point where we're experiencing such unprecedented change. And it's good.
5: <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Hans Chen, uh, founder of Fab9. So thank you for all the panellists. Uh, very fascinating and insightful um, Talk. I have a question for Lucy and maybe other panelists
4: want to jump in as well so um, lucy you, you you learn many new subjects like science, biotech, genetics, editing, uh, even engineering. How do you approach a new subject because they are very deep subjects, and you know i've in my career I've moved from quite a few industries to industries but uh, still kind of adjacent industries. So in engineering to product management. But how do you tackle new science topic and how do you learn really fast? How do you, how do you learn really fast? Like to really I'm not it... sure I do.
2: <laughs> um, I've often said before that I operate on the kind of edge of magic, science and intuition. So um, the, the program director that I had at Philips was very skilled at um, understanding weak signals in culture Something that might happen in five or six years' time that's happening in a very small community that nobody really knows about. And I think that that methodology is somewhat the intuitive part of gravitating towards um, a certain area of science. Um, For me, it starts with reading and meeting these people. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time in Boston and... um, MIT, Harvard, the Broad Institute. For me, that's a really um, important piece of the puzzle. And then experimentation, failure, getting it wrong, um, asking stupid questions. I don't, I don't think there's like a um, perfect equation.
0: It, it, it's sort of like,
2: yeah, very intuitive.
0: I have a, I have a question just on that. On, on In terms of... So we're talking a lot about cross-disciplinary collaboration at the moment and the, and the requirement for designers or any practitioner to, to be able to work with potentially experts in other fields in order to address these incredibly complex social and environmental issues that we're facing. How, If we're talking about challenges of your role, how difficult is it to... What are some of the challenges that you encounter in collaborating with, um, you know, a a, a biosynthetic scientist or a, um, you know, textile maker or the the full spectrum of collaborators that you work with? What are the challenges that come up as as part of that?
2: I I think scientists um, are a good example of... Um, being scared that their story won't be told in a factual and right way, which was one of the the topics that we discussed um, at the Broad Institute, that they're too scared to bring in people who don't get it because then their story won't be communicated in the right way. And that is the challenge, is to get into the innovation process early on, upstream, before they're ready to you know hit print on their publication to nature or however they're sort of communicating it and it's about um, meeting the right people who have a shared vision about the importance of um, telling a scientific story in a way that's digestible and memorable and um, hovers the imagination
0: There any other questions? Yeah, behind you.
5: Um, I'd like to know what the what, what are some of the the largest uh, uh, challenges that you faced while putting together the exhibition.
0: a very good question. Um, So, the exhibition hasn't opened yet, so it's possible that the largest challenge is still to come. Um, I think, um, as we mentioned earlier, it it covers such a broad spectrum of practice um, that... I think that in itself is a a fairly ambitious um, uh, challenge. Um, Where do I start? Um, I think ultimately the... uh, It's very difficult to, in my view, talk about it as a an exhibition that profiles contemporary design practice because even this evening for this talk, I'm very aware that amongst us um, we we would all uh, identify ourselves as potentially artists, as um, a multitude of different... Um, titles I guess and I think that design as a discipline or, or even as a, as a role description in some ways is becoming less and less um, relevant or important and I think does, when we talk about design it still in a way acts as a, as a framework for a discussion or a, an opportunity to exhibit work but I think that design as a discipline I think in future, we may not be talking about design in in the same way. Will it be um, something else entirely we 're talking about completely new methodologies, new ways of working, and um, what will those methodologies look like in the future i I think um, yeah it 's diff- a difficult question to answer. <laughs>
1: I might add to that. I was just going to say, just from our perspective,
0: from an insider's
1: of point yeah. of view, I think I think it's what 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 strikes me as interesting is that you know in, in a um, museum context or a gallery context to take something that's in constant flux, something that's moving so quickly, and to try and stop it and say, come and visit this and have a look at this, and sit and, and to and, and to try and crystallise that moment, I think, is, is a difficult thing as well. Not only the fact that you're kind of trying to traverse such a, a broad spectrum of practice in design, but also that you're trying to represent it at a point where it's moving so quickly as well. So I think that, But I, I, I think that seems to me like a great challenge as well. Um, because you don't have the luxury of it being like a retrospective, so it's something that's kind of concrete and we're just looking back upon something. You know, it's about sort of really looking forward, trying to take a snapshot of the present of where it is, but at the same time trying to kind of look forward. Um, So I think it's an interesting challenge within a museum context as well, within within a static space.
0: Right, and I think that's why it's so important to have these opportunities where we can actually sit down together and and really have a conversation about the works. In in that way, it's a a far more um, sort of dynamic way of presenting works and presenting practice. And, um, yeah, hopefully we can do more of it in the future. So... Um, it, unless there's any more questions, I think we... One more?
5: Um, this is not a question. It's a sort of public announcement. Okay. 13th of Feb, um, two of the Nobel Prize people in CRISP uh, giving a public lecture down at the Convention Centre. It's free. Uh, you'll probably find some extraordinary brains in that room that day. Uh jump onto Convergent Science Network just register and you will really meet some bright people some truly bright people Um, and it's you'll learn things that Lucy was talking about
0: Okay, thank you very much for that so I'd like to thank our panellists and for M Pavilion for hosting us and um, if you're in Sydney Common Good opens on the 2nd of March so thank you